You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. I'm excited today. Um, we are going to be starting a series which will go through three books of the Bible, um, and it'll, it'll take us all the way up to Christmas. So today is the introduction to that. Um, so I want to bring some Old Testament background into it and set the stage for this entire season for study. It's going to be an extended season, but I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Um, let me pray for us before our time, uh, before our time in the Word, and we will we'll dive right on in. Father, thank you for the joy of gathering together. Thank you for the community that we have, the freedom that we have to do so. I pray that our time in your word is profitable this morning, that you would send your spirit to illuminate the text, to let it do your work in our hearts and in us as a church. I pray you would give me wisdom and clarity and boldness and and care in how I administer it. And I pray that you would give us all open hearts and minds to hear what you would have to say to us during these next few minutes. So, Father, we ask for your help. We pray for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. If you've got in your seat or somewhere close around you, there should be a handout um, that looks something like this. It's a chart of different, like it's a timeline of different things. That may be kind of helpful to you as I kind of work through um, some of this background, this Old Testament background in history. To set the stage, we're going to be spending an extended amount of time in the Old Testament. And I don't know that we've ever really done a whole lot of like overview of the Old Testament unless it's been in a specific class or whatnot. So I'm going to do that for us this morning. Just a few minutes of Old Testament background and get the overarching structure of the Old Testament. So starting on your left in the, on the handout here, in Genesis we see the history of the world in chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 50 we see God focusing in on Abraham's family specifically. And that goes through the rest of the book, 12 through 50. In Exodus, we see Israel in Egypt. We see that God sends Moses to bring them out of Egypt. They journey to the promised land. And then in Joshua, we see that there's the, the conquest of the promised land. That Joshua, that we see Moses dying at the end of Deuteronomy. We see Joshua leading the conquest of the promised land in the book of Joshua. And then after the conquest, we get to Judges, which is a time of lawlessness and sin in the promised land with God's people. Then the people of Israel cry out for a king, and we start the monarchy, which is first in, which is first Saul, then David, and then his son Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom is split into two. We have, we have two tribes in the north in Israel, what's known as Israel or Ephraim in Scripture, and then we have ten tribes in the south, which is the tribe of Judah, or the, the country of Judah. That rocks along for a couple hundred years until God finally sends the Assyrians to wipe out the northern two tribes. And then 150 years later, he sends the Babylonians to wipe out the southern ten tribes to destroy Jerusalem, including the temple that Solomon had built. This begins the Babylonian exile, where God's people are in pagan lands. These these pagan nations take God's people away from their lands, and they scatter them, they disperse them throughout the world. And God's people are are no longer inhabiting the promised land. After about 70 years... God sends his people back to the promised land. He gathers them back to the promised land, to Israel. And we see, um, see, he gathers them back to Jerusalem. And we see the temple rebuilt and the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt with Ezra and Nehemiah. During this whole time, during the Babylonian exile, before and after and all this whole time, the prophets are writing to Israel and to the pagan nations. 
The Old Testament ends with prophets telling God's people to wait for the Messiah, and then there's no prophets for about 400 years until John the Baptist, who announces that Jesus is the Messiah. That is a like five-minute overview of the entire Old Testament. I hope that that makes some sense. Um, so where we're going with this series, we talked about this in the video a little bit, but through all this history and through all these books, we see the faithfulness of God toward his people. We see many examples of faithlessness in Israel. There's lots of sin, lots of rebellion, lots of rejection of God. But we also see many examples of faithfulness. We see godly men and women who put their faith and hope in the Lord. We, they, they follow him obediently, even in extreme circumstances, even when they're persecuted. So we're calling this series Faithfulness in All Seasons, and there's kind of two, there's kind of two flavors of that, two, two aspects of that. The first is that we see that God is faithful in all seasons. We, we're going to talk about God's faithfulness in all seasons. And then the second is that what does our faithfulness look like in response to God's faithfulness? What do we as free people, as God's people, what do we do in all seasons in light of God's faithfulness? So first we're going to look through, this is at the bottom of the handout there. Um, first, we're going to work through lamentations. We're going to see God's faithfulness in seasons of sorrow. That's what the video is talking about. And we're also going to see what faithful grief looks like in light of the Lord's discipline. What does it look like to grieve faithfully? We're going to talk through that. And we're going to see there's a lot of hope to be had there. The second, we're, then, we're, then we're going to work through the book of Esther. We will see God's faithfulness in times of peril and what our faithfulness looks like in exile and under persecution. We're going to see what does it look like to be faithful people in a very hostile environment. And then finally, we're going to preach through the book of Ezra, where we'll see God's faithfulness to restore and fulfill his promises. We're going to see our faithful hope for the future is what Ezra sets up with the rebuilding of the temple and the new reforms coming in and repentance and all kinds of cool things that are happening in the book of Ezra. So this will lead us all the way to Christmas. We're going to spend the next six months or so where we'll talk about the fulfillment of that hope, Jesus. So that's where we're going over the next few months. Today we're going to start in the book of Ecclesiastes and introduce the idea that God is faithful in all seasons. So that's the, ter- the sermon title today, Faithfulness in all seasons. So, turn, so if you've got your Bible open or your app open or whatever you have, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and we'll be in the first 15 verses there. So Solomon is writing here. He's thinking about the various seasons of life that we find ourselves in and what God is up to. And we're going to see three things. So if you're taking notes, these are the three main sections that we'll be in. The first is that God is sovereign over time. That's verses 1 through 8. The second is that God is sovereign over us. That's verses 9 through 13. And the third is that God is faithful to his glory in verses 14 and 15. So God is sovereign over time, God is sovereign over us, and God is faithful to his glory. That's where we're going to be going. So I hope you're excited. Ecclesiastes is by far my favorite book of the Bible. Um, I don't know that anybody else necessarily shares that. I love this book. I love how Solomon writes. And this is one of the most well-known passages here. So let's, let's see what Solomon has for us. Let's see what the Lord has for us in these 15 verses here. I'll read them, um, in complete, uh, I'll read them completely, and then we'll, we'll dive in. I need to turn in my Bible to get there too. My goodness. All right. I'm going to read the whole first 15 verses, and then we'll take it piece by piece. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, 
a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Lots to think through. Lots to take in. Let's let's take it one section at a time. We'll take the first eight verses. We see an introduction to the passage here in verse 1. That there, this is, we want, we want to make sure that this is just descriptive language. It's not prescriptive. It's not saying you need to first be born and then you've got to die. And then there's a time to go kill people and there's a time to not kill people. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us to do things. It's just describing how the world is. It's telling us what's happening in the world. So there's a season for everything, a time for everything under heaven. And if you think about this, like there's, there's this, kind of flowing nature to this poem here, right? This is a, a, a poem for the verses 2 through 8. There's a flowing nature of it. Think about the best the way that I've heard it described is that it's a tapestry of times. So each time is kind of a thread, and they're kind of woven together into this beautiful thing that, sh- that, that we call life. So this tapestry of times. There's a switch to poetry in verses 2 through 8. It's a poem that describes much of the human experience. We see in verse 2 that there's life seasons. There's life seasons of humans, that there's birth and death. There's life seasons in agriculture. There's planting and then plucking up what's planting or harvesting. The point here, and and I'm going to move through these fairly quickly, the point here is that none of us can control time. Nobody can control time. We can't control when we're born or when we die. We can't control the seasons. We can't make it spring. We can't make it summer. We can't make it fall or winter. We can't control those things. God is the one who's in control of them. We can't control when it's time to plant or harvest. We can ignore them at our peril, but we we can't control them. Um, I moved here from Texas where it snows only in like a couple of flurries in like January. And it snowed in May a few years ago. And that was just sinful to me. Like that was completely wrong. So the point being like we can anticipate when seasons are going to come and go. But we can't control the weather. We can't control the growing season. We can't control what kind of crops we're going to bear. So the point here is that we should be faithful with the time that we do have, that we cannot control. We should be faithful with it. Verse 3, we see seasons of destruction and construction. We see there's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up. So this idea of a time to kill, there's the idea of self-defense or war. There's, There's times for death to be happening. 
There's a time to heal. There's time for peace treaties. There's time for rebuilding things. There's a time to tear down, which is like an invading army coming in and tearing down cities, tearing down walls, or demolishing old buildings. When, you're, when you have to build something new, you tear down the old building, rip out the foundations, and start over from scratch, right? There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build, to lay concrete, to put rebar in, to erect something. This is true for buildings. It's true for cities. It's times to build up and there's times to tear down. And it's also time, it's also true of nations as well. I don't know if you know this, but there's a life cycle to nations. There's a new humble beginnings and there's golden ages and then there's sunsets for those nations. It's the same thing throughout human history. We see that as true. So for us, there are times where we will build and invest. Sometimes we will tear down and start over. The point is that life is not some steady, consistent climb. There's setbacks and hardships. We slip along the way. There's blessings. There's level ground. There's times where things are beautiful and peaceful. And there are times where life is very hard and we have to take a step back. We have to spend our savings or go into debt. There's, there's, there's lots of hard things that can come along the way. Verse 4 deals with emotions. In private, we weep and we laugh. In public, we mourn and we dance. And the second set intensifies the first. Mourning and dancing is, is an exposition, is, is, a, is a, a, an increasing of weeping and laughing, right? And the point here is that our emotional lives vary widely. Our emotions are so temporary. And God has intended that we be this way. He's intended that we have a dynamic emotional life, that we experience life in a, in, a, in a changing fashion. Because we respond to events, we go in and out of joy and sadness, and sometimes we have no idea even why. We have no idea why we just wake up angry or wake up sad or wake up happy. We have no idea. But the fact is that God is sovereign over seasons of emotion because he is sovereign over all seasons. Verse 5, we see relationships. There's a time to throw away stones or gather stones together. There's, there's a lot of debate as to what this actually means, but I think the, the prevailing opinion, and, and my opinion, is that it's to ruin a field with scattering stones. If you, if you think about a, a field that's cultivated for like weed or whatever, you can ruin that field by scattering stones in like big rocks. You just throw stones in it and ruin that field to where it crushes the crops, but also makes it unable, you're unable to plow it. You can't do anything with that field until you remove those stones. So it's saying that there's a time, that, and that's generally kind of like um, the idea is that when you're retreating from an invading enemy, you sow stones on the fields so that they can't harvest your crops. They can't plunder you in that way. Or if you're an invading army, you're sabotaging your, your enemy's crops. There's the time to sow, to scatter stones, to throw away stones. There's also a time to clear fields of stones and prepare to cultivate them, to replant them. There's a time, there's, it's talking about kind of relationships there, and you kind of see that again in the second half of the verse. There's a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing. We see there's a time for peace. There's a time for war. I, I don't know if you're like me in this at all, but I've noticed that relationships vary widely. I've only maintained a handful of friends throughout my life. Um, my best friend from middle school committed suicide um, a handful of years ago. 
still talk with my best friend from high school occasionally. Occasionally. I've officiated weddings for two of my best friends from college, but I don't talk to them that much anymore. My two closest friends from seminary are members of this church. But many friends and acquaintances over the years have come and gone. Many remind me of fond memories and joys, and some of them remind me of painful seasons. And some are a mixture and are confusing to me. I I don't know why certain people from high school did things that they did. I don't know why that person never returned my phone call and we've we've gone separate separate ways. I, I don't know. But that's okay. Because people change. And all of these seasons of life change us. And that's life. But God does not change. He is constant. He is sovereign over all seasons. Verse 6 we see, talking about possessions here, where there's time to seek and a time to lose. There's a, a time to go look for that thing that you've lost. And there's a time to just give up and say it's gone. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. There's a, a time to acquire possessions. There's a time to lose possessions. It's kind of like the, the illustration here, the language here is like jettisoning cargo in a storm. If you find yourself in a ship in a storm and the, the waves are just crushing your vessel, one of the ways you can do that, one of the ways you can survive that storm and not be capsized is to throw heavy stuff overboard. We see that in the book of Jonah and there's a couple of different other examples of that. We see jettisoning cargo. There's a time to throw stuff away, throw stuff overboard to save your life. The point here is that possessions come and go. That there are seasons where it seems like you get another thing every day. If you've gotten married, you know this. Like there's wedding presents just come flooding in. Or when you have a baby, like wedding shower or baby showers and all these different things, just you just find your house just stuffed with boxes and wrapping paper and gift bags and stuff you don't want, stuff you don't need, like quesadilla makers, whatever. I've got that, I don't want to rant. <laughs> I'll start ranting. <laughs> but there are seasons when you get rid of things, like when you move. You, you start taking inventory and you're like, why do we even have a quesadilla maker? We haven't ever used it. It's not even, it's still in the box. Or spring cleaning. Or when somebody dies and you go through their belongings, have an estate sale. You take inventory of their life. There are times to gather things together and there's times to throw them away. But either, either way, we should not base our life on whether we have stuff or are losing stuff, that stuff is not eternal. We cannot take it with us. And I would say this, the furnishings of heaven will far surpass anything that we can have this side of heaven. The put to shame anything that we have here on earth. Verse 7 talks about mourning and moving on. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. The, The context here is that when you're in mourning in, in, in Scripture, in the, in the Bible, the, the custom, the, the culture was, when you were in mourning, you tore your clothes, right? Um, so you, you are grieved, and so you tear your clothes. You see Job doing this. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to tear your clothes. And then when you signified that your time of mourning was over, you would sew that garment back up. So it's a, there's a time to tear, and there's a time to sew. And the, the point being here, and, and then... Uh, let's, let's move on to the next half of the verse. There's a time for silence, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. If you think about the book of Job, 
when Job's friends, so Job loses his entire family, he loses all of his stuff, all he has is his wife antagonizing him, and he himself is covered with boils, and he's in a pitiable place, right? He's completely destroyed. But what happens when his friends show up? They are silent, and they sit with him for a few days. They just, they just sit there and look at him and weep with him. This is a time to be silent like Job's friends, but there's also a time to speak. There's a time that mourning ends, that it's over. There's a time to resume conversation, to resume life. The point here is that there's a proper time to grieve and there's a proper time to move on. I'm convinced, I've talked about this with several of you and I've talked about this with the elders I'm convinced that we as a culture have no idea how to grieve properly. I'm convinced of that. We ignore grief and we stuff it away or we rage about it or any number of things in between. And, and I'm, I'm not, I certainly will not tell anybody how to grieve. It's a very personal thing for each of us. I've seen some people go travel. They take trips and just kind of get away. Some people stay at home. Some people isolate themselves and, and don't want to talk to anybody. They shut their phone off. They shut everything down. Some people want all of their friends to come talk to them. Some people ignore grief completely and convince themselves that they don't need to think about it. Some people dive headlong into grief and let it define their lives. But the one thing that we should do in our grief is turn to the Lord in it. We're going to do a deep dive into grief, into godly sorrow in the book of Lamentations. But for now, I, I want to encourage you, we're going we're to do an extended study of that for five weeks. But for now, I want to encourage you to do two things. The first is that if you're grieving, if you find yourself grieving and, and mourning something, acknowledge your grief to the Lord and to your community. Talk about it. Don't ignore it or dismiss it. Look it full in the face and know that, just like with Israel enslaved in Egypt, that God sees you, that he hears your prayers, and that he knows what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. So press into him in your grief and listen to him comfort you. And then the second thing, once you've grieved and let the Lord in, you need to feel free to move on. This will look very different for every situation. And certainly memories are still going to be there. And just because you've grieved does not mean the pain is going to be gone. But my experience is that grief comes in waves. And it gradually lessens over time. And it's not that the grief lessens, it's that you just get used to it. But brothers and sisters, we must not be enslaved to grief. We Christians grieve differently than the world because we have hope, because we are free people. So let's live with hope in Christ. Let's live with hope in the resurrection to come. And let's live in light of the God who is sovereign over all times and all seasons, including times of sorrow. And if someone you know is grieving, this is very important. If someone that you know is grieving, please pray for wisdom and pray for discernment about when to be silent and when to speak. Be very careful with your words. 
In verse 8, we see the extremes of human experience. We see love and hate. We see war and peace. And it moves from personal love and hate, so personal emotions and personal experience, to corporate experience, to, to war and peace. And what's interesting is that this, this verse is flipped. Most of the others have an A-B-A-B structure. So we would expect it to be love and hate and peace and war. We would expect that structure. But it's actually flipped to where it's an A-B-B-A structure. I hope that makes sense to you. But it's not love and hate and peace and war, but it's rather love and hate and war and peace. Hate and war are sandwiched in the middle of there. But that's kind of concluding this whole poem, right? Verses two, verse 2 starts off with birth and death, and it ends in verse 8 with war and peace. This makes it kind of come full circle because peace, peacetime leads to birth, right? After World War II, we had what? A baby boom, right? After war, it's time for peace, time for birth, and time for death. You see the cycle kind of starts over and over again. I've gone through this in a little bit of detail, but the individual elements of verses 1 through 8, the individual things are not as important as the overall picture, the overall structure that we're talking about here, that there is an appointed season for everything under heaven. Life is complex, right? We see the complexity here in these verses. There's a time for birth and sweet memories and precious joys. But there is also a time to die. There's t- there is a time to mourn. There's a time for everything under heaven. There's a time for all of the breadth of life's experiences. Life is complex, and God has certainly ordained that it be that way. That's the point of this passage. God is faithful in that complexity as well. He is faithful across seasons. He's faithful to see us through all kinds of seasons. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we should be faithful in it as well. So we don't have to worry or fear. We don't have to to wring our hands out and wonder what's going to happen. We can live faithfully and we can embrace all of life because our God is sovereign and faithful and he has set the times. One of the best ways I've heard it, one of the commentators that I read said, the ever-constant swings of time's pendulum are suspended and held firmly by God. He determines the pendulum swings. He determines our seasons. So we've seen in verses 1 through 8 that God is sovereign over all seasons, and then we're going to take a look here at verses 9 through 13 that he is sovereign over our seasons. He's sovereign over us. I'll read those verses. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So the question in verse 9 is a very hard question. So what profit is there if we're not in charge? What's the point of life then? I think we can see, we'll kind of come at this from a different angle. I'll kind of bring the point in later. But we see that God is sovereign over us and we can see this because he's given us three things. He's, he has given us three things. He's 
he's brought something down to our level. We can see this in verses 10, 11, and 13. Number one, he's given us the business to be busy with. Number two, he's, and I'll take these in turn as well. The second one is that he's put eternity in our hearts. And the third is that he's given us pleasure and toil and food and drink. Verse 13. So the first one is that he's given us a busyness to be busy with. Working is a condition of humanity. We see that given in the Garden of Eden in in, uh, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, that God has given us a task. He's given a task to humans to fill the earth and subdue it. That's Genesis 1, 28. That means we manage resources. That means we farm, we build, we shape the earth that God has given. We work together to produce all kinds of things. It also means that we have children and we disciple them. We fill the earth and we go and subdue it. We go do things in it. We have a creation to work with. And this business that God has given us has kept us occupied for millennia. We've been busy and hard at work cultivating things, growing things, having babies, doing, building cities. We've been doing this for a long time. And it shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. But, but also, not only has God given us a task, he's also made it difficult, right? In Genesis 3, part of the curse, by the sweat of our brow, we will toil. And there's going to be pain in childbirth. So there's going to be a pain in fulfilling that mission that God has sent us on to fill the earth and subdue it. It's going to cost us a lot of sweat. It's going to cost us a lot of tears. It's going to be painful. So God has, in, in his sovereignty over us, has given us a business to be busy with. He's also put eternity into our hearts. The second half of verse 11, we'll skip forward to that. He's put eternity into man's heart. How often do you think about the past? How often do you think about the future? That right there is what God has put into our hearts. That wondering about the past, thinking about history, thinking about your personal past, what's happened in your life, and then wondering what's going to happen in the future. God has put that in you. He's put that in all of us. He's put eternity there so that we can understand history, so that we can comprehend a great deal about the world and how it works. But the problem is that we're so limited in our perspective. We cannot know from the verse, we cannot know from beginning to end like our creator does. We also don't understand ourselves completely. We have all kinds of quirks and idiosyncrasies that just don't make sense. Like, why do I look behind the shower curtain every time I go into the bathroom to make sure there's nobody there, right? Why do I do what I know is wrong? Why do I think of the perfect response to somebody a day after I've had that conversation? Why do I think of the perfect comeback or the, the best thing, the best piece of advice I could have given them a day later? I don't understand that. I'm a mystery to myself in that way. So we ache for understanding. We spend billions exploring the universe and finding out what's going on and finding meaning, searching for meaning. But that ache of eternity never leaves. It's never quelled, and it never will be quelled this side of eternity. It's a veiled mystery that God has made it that way. But a beautiful comfort is that while life may be a mystery to us, We are not a mystery to God. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are made of dust. 
He's created us and he's sovereign over us and he knows what's good for us. And not only that, he's told us what's good for us. So regardless of what season we're in, it's always good to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. The late J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. So we don't, we don't necessarily always know what's going on or why things are happening, but we do always know how we can glorify God. There's always going to be an answer for that. So another way that we see that God is sovereign over us is that he's also given us a common grace in taking pleasure in our work. You see, Solomon perceives two things. Verse 12, we'll get to the second one here in a minute in verse 14. Solomon perceives something. He applies his powerful intellect and his God-given wisdom to this insight, and he considers that there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good. We see that in verse 12, right? But this is kind of that ache of Ecclesiastes, this tone that the whole book is written with. There's this admission of resignation, that this is the best that we can do in a fallen world. The best we can do is just enjoy the ride. It's acknowledging the goodness of God and giving us simple pleasures also. It's, this is this framework that this question kind of comes from a, bitter, from a bitter place of mind. It says it's, it's abandoning the quest for profit. It's abandoning the quest for life on our own terms. And it's reorienting, reorienting our lives toward our creator God. There's nothing better to do than to enjoy what God has given us and to trust him in it. All of these points to say, we have to see in these verses that God is the principal actor here. God is the one who sets the times. He's the one who's given humanity business to be busy with. He's the one who's put eternity into our hearts and minds. He's the one who acts from beginning to end. He's the one who gives food and drink and pleasure and toil. And this is how we know that he has made everything beautiful in time, in its time, because he sets the times over us, because he is sovereign over us. That is how we know that he is true and right when he says that he makes everything beautiful in its time. So God is sovereign over all times and all seasons and all peoples. One of our main problems in life, to quote the great theologian, the eminent theologian, Father Kavanaugh in the movie Rudy, is that there is a God and we are not him. That's a massive problem for us. We are eternal beings who live in a temporal world. We desire to know everything about life, but the problem is that God has limited our ability and we can't. We can't know everything about life. We can certainly try, but we cannot know it. So rather than be frustrated and be embittered by what we cannot do or be, we cannot be omniscient and we can't be frustrated by that, we should rather enjoy the gifts that God has given us. And we also see that God's work is what will endure in eternity, that, that God's work is what will endure in eternity. That his saving work in our lives, his actions that bring him glory, and everything else will fade away. God alone, God's actions alone will, will endure in eternity, and everything else will fade away. So we see there that God is faithful, and that we should be faithful, but we can also be joyful, and we can do good, 
And that's how we glorify him. That's how we find our joy in him. And that's how we make disciples of Jesus. So we've seen in verses 1 through 8 that God is sovereign over time. We've seen in verses 9 through 13 that God is sovereign over us. And in verses, verses 14 and 15, we'll see that God is faithful to his glory. Let's read those verses now. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So the second thing that Solomon perceives here in verse 14 is that the one who is sovereign over all times and over us, that he acts eternally for his glory. And what is that forever work? What is that eternal work that he has done? Saving sinners. Redemption. Ordering creation for his glory. You see, God has arranged this existence so that all may stand in awe of him. We see that in verse 14. Consider the whole arc of scripture. The whole, when you look at the whole Bible, from front to cover to back in the maps, the whole thing, we see creation, fall, promises made, Promises fulfilled in Christ and new creation. It all focuses on Christ. He was present at creation. He's the promised one. He's the God with us. He is the one who died and made atonement for sins. And he is ushering in a new creation. It's all focused on him. All of creation focuses on Christ, who in turn glorifies and displays the glory of God. We see this in Galatians 4. At the fullness of time, at the fullness of time, God sent his son. Then we see when Jesus begins his ministry, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's Mark 1.15. And then while we were were still weak, at the right time, God died, or Christ died for the ungodly. That's Romans 5.6. So we see that God works in all times to bring appropriate things for the salvation of souls. He works in all creation so that all may stand in awe of him. And as part of creation, made of matter, made of protons and neutrons and electrons, as, as, as physical beings, we are part of that creation. And you and I do this as well. All of our dynamic lives, all of the ups and downs, the good times and the bad times, everything in verses 1 through 8 and all that movement and variation compares to the constant, unchanging, unflinching character of God. He is sovereign over the times, and he is sovereign over us, and he exercises that sovereignty for his glory. And he will not share that glory with anybody else. He alone is worthy of worship. But he allows us to know him. He he saves sinners and redeems them so that we can display his character and his glory in creation. We see that God is faithful to his glory, and he's faithful to his glory in us. That's why he's put the spirit inside of us to grow us, to rebuke us when we sin, to encourage us when we need it, to help us illuminate the text and understand what he has said and where he's moving. He is at work in us for his glory and for our good. And God is faithful to his glory and he orders creation and our lives so that we would stand in awe, stand in fear before him. This question that's been aching me um, for the last week as I've been kind of working through this text. 
So why don't we stand in awe of God? If all of creation, if, if God is sovereign over all creation, over all times, over us, and if he orders creation for his glory, if he, if he does all of these things so that we stand in awe of him, so that we revere him, so that we worship him, so that we fear him, why don't we stand in awe of him? Why do we forget him? Why do we approach him lazily in prayer? Why don't we care what his word says? Maybe we don't want to see him. Maybe we see awesome displays of power in nature, but we would rather turn a blind eye to the hand of God in them. But it's undeniable. Through birth and death and planting and harvesting and war and peace and all the other things in the first eight verses. It's undeniable God's hand is at work. I think an uncomfortable truth is that maybe we think we can run things better than God. We, we assume that he doesn't know what he's doing. But what a strange thought for a creature who has no control over its birth or death. What an arrogant thought for a creature who needs to breathe oxygen every two minutes or it dies. Who needs to drink water and eat food and sleep. We have daily reminders of our lack of sovereignty. See, brothers and sisters, we are totally, God, we are totally dependent on God's creation and on God himself. We have no grounds to accuse him of not knowing what he's doing. We have none. The clay doesn't get to tell the potter what to do. We don't get to use the breath of life that God has put in us to insult him. We don't get to use our mouths and salivary glands to spit on him or to curse him. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. He has allowed his creation to ridicule him. The high king of heaven come down to us, lived among us, wept for us, and was rejected by us, shamed by us, and murdered by us. And not only does he not speak, speak us out of existence, but he dies for us. He gives us grace. He gives us new life. That is what should cause us to stand in awe of God. That he has set the day of our birth and the day of our death and every day in between. He is in control and we are completely dependent on him whether we like it or not. So let's stand in awe of him, brothers and sisters. What else are we going to do? Spend our 70 or 80 years on this earth in rebellion and doing our own thing? Fervently working to change something? Spending all of our time toiling away for some purpose or cause only to breathe our last and be confronted by our Creator? Friends, we will stand in awe of Him. Whether it's in worship or terror, we will stand in awe of our Creator. So let's spend our lives in such a way that we can rejoice and look forward to that resurrection with eager anticipation. Let's be welcomed with a well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master rather than depart from me, I never knew you. Let's live for the glory of God and not the glory of ourselves or of our stuff. Because God is faithful to his glory, let's be found faithful to his glory as well.
last few thoughts here as we close out in verse 15 essentially returns back to chapter 1. There's nothing new under the sun. What's going on has happened before. What's coming in the future has happened before. There's this cyclical nature to life that God ordains the repetition, the cycles, the years. And then we also see that God accomplishes what he intends to accomplish. So when all is said and done, the point of this passage is this. That God is sovereign over time. That God is sovereign over us. And God is faithful to his glory. And we should live wisely. We should live faithfully. We should live hopefully We should live for his glory by being faithful to him and faithful to our Christian brothers and sisters. As the narrative continues, as we see, if we go back to the very beginning when I was talking about all the Old Testament, Solomon here is writing as a king of Israel during the Golden Age when things are really, really good. But that monarchy ultimately fails. His son, uh, because of his sins and some sins of David and a bunch of other things, um, God splits the kingdom and the monarchy is divided. It ultimately fails, leading to a civil war and a divided kingdom and some very, very dark times for Israel. And then during those dark times, we have the Assyrians, a pagan nation, coming in and capturing the north and later the Babylonians, another pagan nation, capturing the south. And it's, just, it's Because of sin and because of just the seasons of life, this just turns into a real mess. And that leads us to Lamentations lamenting and weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem, of the capital city of Israel. That's where we're going to be next week, where the prophet Jeremiah is weeping over a destroyed Jerusalem. But brothers and sisters, whether you find yourselves in a good and sweet season of life or whether you find yourself in dark times, know that God is with you. The sovereign God who is over all times who is over all of us and who is for us, for his glory, that he is with you. As we navigate these seasons, may we echo the precious words of one of my favorite hymns. Whether peace like a river attends your way or whether sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot, let us say in faith, it is well with my soul. The only way for things to be well with your soul, the only way to have confidence and the creator God, is to lay your life at the feet of Jesus and live for him. He alone is the God who came to die for us, to make atonement for sins, to rescue us, to make us new. He alone is the one who sacrificed himself and became sin for us. He took our sin on him. He took our sin away from us and gave us his righteousness. He lived the life that we could not live, that we were supposed to live, but we were unable to do. And he gave us his righteousness. He died the death that was meant for us. And then he was resurrected. And he currently, he currently ministers in heaven on our behalf. He currently prays for us and is for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to prepare heaven for us. And he awaits us, sitting on his throne in glory. I hope you see that there's a beauty and a hope and a joy in that. And I hope that you see that that will fuel your faithful living this side of heaven. I hope that you've heard the grace and the beauty of the sovereign God who is sovereign over times, who is sovereign over us, and who is for his glory. And I hope, I hope that you will join me and the other elders and the rest of this church 
and laboring for his glory while we have the breath of life in us.